I do hope these talks are somehow helpful. Sometime. And as I think I already mentioned, uh, a, a lot, or some uh, percentage of what's in the content of these talks and how they're shaped um, is really in response to what it seems so far uh, may have been difficult to understand or uh, easily misunderstood or frequently misunderstood or um, a wish to rebalance uh, a kind of emphasis if something has, uh, in in the last, uh, however many talks over the last few years, got emphasized, or a certain aspect, or a certain approach, or a certain leaning, has got emphasized at the expense of another uh, aspect, approach, leaning, uh, where I didn't really intend that emphasis, so an attempt to rebalance that, if that's necessary, if that is the case. <clears throat> so I hope, I hope... Uh, I hope all this is helpful. In uh, previous talks over the last few years, I um, described a um, <clears throat> process, an evolution of um, practicing with the imaginal where where one might be practicing with an image and there's the eros there. And that image uh, becomes imaginal or is imaginal, and so there is the soul-making, and Eros is involved, and uh, there there is the soul-making dynamic that gets going and um, uh, involves, catalyzes, uh, ignites the whole Eros-Psyche-Logos dynamic and their uh, mutual insemination, mutual complication, enriching, deepening, widening. Um, we've talked about all that as being um, of, of one way of regarding what the essence of the soul-making uh, dynamic is as it happens. And in that, in that sort of vortex of Eros, Psyche, Logos and their uh, mutual interrelations, um, there can be at times or sometimes a kind of... Um, spilling over uh, of the image. One's working with an imaginal figure, so, so to speak, intrapsychically. It begins to spill over in, into the extra-psychic, into the world. The <coughs> soul-making perceptions, the imaginal perceptions, begin to spread and begin to involve not just, uh, and include not just this imaginal figure that one might be working with intrapsychically, but also the self um, and the world, and even one's eros, and, and uh, all the elements of being, um, so-called intrapsychic, so-called extrapsychic. But particularly in the extrapsychic and the world, um, we we use the word cosmopoesis, uh, which is <clears throat> in our day and time a an unusual word. So cosmo from cosmos, meaning the the world, and and also the organizing principles of the world, the structure of the universe, and poesis meaning a kind of poetic creativity. Cosmopoesis means what happens through the depth and the vitality and the and the, uh, the beauty, really, of the imaginal practice. There's this, as I said, spreading of that soul-making perception 
um, to include and to involve uh, uh, the, the world around us, so that when one opens one's eyes, or as one is sitting there walking, walking around, whatever it is, standing around, um, the world is imbued uh, or, or becomes an imaginal perception influenced by um, the original intrapsychic imaginal perception. Um, and one, the, the word poesis there is, you know, quite carefully chosen. So, after the cosmology implies a kind of truth, usually um, a scientific truth. Cosmopoesis impri- implies this kind of, it's got a poetic truth to it. It's got uh, a degree or a kind of truth that one would not feel in one's integrity and one's completeness and the fullness of one's being and one's soul, one would not feel um, really okay with just dismissing it as illusion. This perception. Um, I went through a lot of examples uh, on uh, the end of the last few talks of the Path of the Imaginar and also the Reenchanting the Cosmos retreat. Um, so it's a creative process and a discovery. Discovery in the sense there is some kind of truth to these um, many, many possible perceptions of the world, the cosmos, the universe. Um, what happens there, there's a spilling over to spread, to include the world, <coughs> self, other, world, etc. in this cosmopoiesis, and then all perceptions, <coughs> excuse me, all perceptions of the world are, we could say, shaped or coloured by or in relationship to the particular image that one, say, started with. So it's not that all, uh, if one is imagining uh, an, an, an imaginal figure and there's a, a god or a goddess or a divinity, a deity, whatever, and it's not then necessarily only that the whole world then is perceived as that deity. One uh, might then perceive oneself and elements of the world in relation to, in reference to that deity, as the lover of that deity, or the consort, or the, uh, the food of that deity, or whatever. Um, but all perceptions then in this cosmic places are shaped, coloured by, uh, or coloured and shaped in relation to the particular image that one started with. And there's infinite possibilities here of cosmopoiesis. It's really uh, endless because of the infinite fertility and possibility of of the soul and the imaginal uh, faculty, the imaginal realm. And so in that perception, all those elements and aspects we listed um, of uh, pertaining to the imaginal um, in the last talk um, uh, are, are, are part, are, are elements of that cosmopoetic perception. Um, in other words, it is soul-making. And those, some of those elements seem, seem more obviously to refer to the subjective pole, um, and some more to the objective pole of that of that imaginal um, constellation of that cosmopoetic perception, the constellation of the cosmopoetic perception of the soul-making perception. Now, actually, that kind of cosmopoesis we could say is a um, the larger part or the larger subset of all possible cosmopoeses. If we include, too, the um, 
perceptions that we can have of the world when the perception is um, influenced, imbued with uh, perceptions of universal oneness that uh, can come out of certain deep meditative states um, or out of formal meditation as well. So perceptions of the oneness of love, everything is of the nature of, of the substance of love. Love permeates and is the essence of all things. Or compassion is, or joy is, or peace. These are different kinds of perceptions of oneness that then become different kinds of cosmopoesis. And again, one wouldn't be happy or uh, feel uh, okay with just dismissing, oh, this is just a, a, a fabrication, a delusion this perception of oneness. One intuits that there is some kind of, let's call it mystical truth here. Everything is awareness. Um, the nature of all being is uh, awareness, uh, or is nothingness, etc. There are, in this camp of what we could call um, perceptions of universal oneness, a cosmopoesis that are um, inflected by uh, where the predominant feature is this one kind of, some kind of universal oneness. There are actually a finite number of possibilities. I mentioned this in, I think, your, the Eros Unfettered series. And there are certain variations, so, for instance, around the sixth jhana, or, um, or practices of resting in awareness, either one. This can give rise to um, quite a few states where the essence of things that permeates is consciousness or awareness. They're not exactly the same. Um, and it's interesting, if this is the kind of thing whose beauty you are moved by and that you're interested in, it can be really fascinating to kind of um, sail on those seas, navigate that territory and make those discernments. Um, but that set of perceptions of cosmopoesis that involve a kind of uh, perception of universal oneness, um, of some kind uh, of kind of universal essential essence. Um, they are more limited. There's a finite possibilities, but together with the ones that come uh, through more imaginal practice, um, they form the whole set of of all possible cosmopoeses, which is actually infinite. Because although, as I said, the perceptions of universal oneness, the, those kind of cosmopoeses are a finite set. The others are infinite, so open-ended. There's no limit to what the soul can conjure, weave, create, discover. So one may be working uh, primarily with a so-called intrapsychic imaginal figure, and then there's this spreading out into a cosmopoesis that's shaped, uh, coloured, by or in relationship to that particular image that one was working with. And so that cosmos is very particular, <coughs> and there are infinite possibilities. Or, one can actually not start with an intrapsychic uh, image, but rather one starts with uh, some or other object of the five senses, some thing that one is uh, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, uh, hearing, some sounds, sights, uh, smell, taste, touches, um, or a person that one is in, uh, that, that one is uh, again seeing, listening to, whatever. Um, one basically starts with the world and the things of the world 
Um, and the, the initial starting point in practice is with that sense contact rather than with the so-called intrapsychic um, I- I- imaginal. One starting with the extrapsychic. And there too, um, in some instances when we practice, Eros and Psyche and Logos get involved in that sensing, in that perceiving. And we say, perceiving my beloved, my uh, uh, friend, my teacher, my whatever it is, uh, lover, imaginally. Or, we use this phrase, sensing with soul. We're sensing um, this or that thing. We're sensing this or that object. We're sensing the world with soul. Sensing with soul, introduce this phrase, and I'd like to dwell on it a little bit uh, today and over the next few days. Um, the cosmopoesis, the movement from uh, an intrapsychic imaginal figure to that cosmopoesis, is also um, a sensing with soul. So there too, the world is sensed with soul. The order of pra- of practices in which we arrived at that, in other words, whether we started intrapsychically or extrapsychically, so to speak, um, that's irrelevant. At that point um, of cosmopoesis, we are sensing with soul. Yes. So those kind of cosmopoesis are subsets of a larger. Um, mode of being that we call sensing with soul. As a kind of side point for right now, the um, more traditional kind of um, oneness perceptions of the world, and those kind of cosmopoises that I I mentioned just earlier, they may be um, uh, soul-making, as I've said before in other talks, and they may be a kind of sensing with soul if they are newer to the consciousness, and so they present a kind of beyond, I haven't quite got my head around this, I haven't quite plumbed the depths of of this perception, Um, they present to the psyche a kind of beyond, which is um, more than I know, more than I'm familiar, more than I can quite grasp or sense right now. And so they have the allure, and there's the eros there or because of the beyond, because of the pothos in the eros. Um, and they can also be, those kind of oneness perceptions can also be um, soul-making uh, when, uh, if there's a fantasy of the self in relationship to that experience, or in relation to the tradition that kind of teaches and uh, lays out and shows the way to those kind of experiences. Um, so that could be soul-making. Uh, we could then also call them sensing the soul. So that when all that is there uh, with a certain image, a certain sense of uh, universal oneness, it could still be, we could still call it sensing the soul. And again, perhaps I'm too sloppy sometimes, uh, I, 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 or not caring enough about really drawing rigid definitions of words. But another way to, to look, kind of carve all this up, up is to say also, we could say that soul has two directions of uh, desire, two directions of eros. One is the whole direction towards unfabricating, towards the unfabricated. And those different states of um, perceiving universal oneness um, love, peace, joy, uh, 
awareness, nothingness, etc. They are, if you like, um, along that line or in that direction. They're points on the spectrum towards unfabricating, uh, towards the unfabricated. They are states and perceptions of less and less fabricating. We could order them and kind of delineate them along that spectrum. And we could say something in the soul, it might not be alive for all people. Um, any, uh, in other words, a person, this might not have come alive for a person yet. But I would say that the soul has some desire, some eros in that direction, some pull and magnetic attraction to the beauty and the mystery and the wonder and the deliverance, in the Buddha's words, um, of those uh, states, all of those states along that spectrum, all the way to the unfabricated. Um, this is a, a hunger, a desire, an erotic uh, pull of uh, 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 an impetus of the soul, and it has uh, the soul has a second direction, if you like, of um, its desire or eros, or the way its desire and eros um, points and wants to open, explore, expand, unfold, and that is towards. Um, not so much the unfabricated, but towards what we could say poetic or soulful fabrications that include the imaginative faculty, the imaginal faculty. So there's a movement towards um, unfabricating and everything that's on that spectrum, all that those onenesses, and there's a pull, a movement, a longing, a love, um, an erotic um, uh, uh, m- m- movement, and desire for uh, poetic, soulful um, fabrications that include the imaginal faculty. And it's really, uh, I think at the moment, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm sometimes a little, you know, I feel like I don't really care about the language too much, but let's just say for now, this last one, this, this um, poetic, soulful fabrication, soul-making fabrications that include the imaginal faculty that were... I'm going to be calling or want to introduce the word sensing the soul. So in other words, sensing that is soul-making. Therefore, sensing that opens up, sensing this world, sensing this thing uh, that I'm in touch with, this material thing, this person, this object, this element of existence, sensing um, that in a way that gives rise to um, some sense Uh, and concept wrapped up of divinity, of sacredness, of meaningfulness, of beauties opening up. And um, so sensing that opens all that up. And this to me, and I've said this before, um, uh, this to me, this uh, opening up of the sensing of the world in ways that are soul-making, in other words, opening up uh, uh, the possibilities of the sensing of divinity and sacredness and holiness in and through and not just beyond uh, the world, uh, and opening that up widely and infinitely and in ways that really make a difference uh, to, to the soul and to one's existence, and opening up the meaningfulness, and opening up the beauty. This, to me, is the main point of imaginal practice. It's not so much getting fascinating images, or um, this or or that, Um, but this, this, uh, if you like, 
transformation of the whole sense of existence. Uh, this redeeming and healing of the whole sense of existence. This open-ended creation and discovery of uh, what existence is and can be for us. All of existence. All of existence. This to me is really the main point. And, uh, you know, and that can be very subtle at times and very undramatic. But, uh, it, 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 to me, the main point of even intrapsychic imaginal practice is not so much the intrapsychic images for their own sake. Um, yes, healing comes um, in, in all this practice, imaginal practice, soul-making practice. Personal healing comes. Yes, dukkha is... Uh, healed, attenuated in, in all kinds of ways and I'll dwell on that in, in uh, I think the next talk um, yes uh, all this imaginal practice the way we're teaching it and this sensing the soul and all of that um, uh, catalyzes fertilizes uh, works and uh, brings to I was going to say fruition, but it's it's also an open-ended process. What we could call um, self-growth or my psycho-spiritual process, your psycho-spiritual process. Um, what a Jungian would call individuation. So yes, um, personal meaningfulness and relevance are involved, or actually somewhat akin to what a Jungian would call um, individuation as there are significant differences, but um, and I haven't used that word so much. But um, in other words, yes, all this imaginal practice um, brings personal healing, brings the resolution of my dukkha, and actually also the dukkha in the world, because we live, we see the world differently, and we care for the world differently because we see it with soul, we sense it with soul. Our relationship with matter, with nature, with other human beings, and other. Um, other sentient beings is is also deepened, enriched, made more beautiful, made more meaningful, made more act, uh, um, uh, importantly woven into our very sense of existence and value. So all this has huge um, implication for the reduction of dukkha. Um, but one could also uh, refer... So all that's involved. the he, he, Personal healing, reduction of dukkha, mine and, and other beings, um, individuation or something akin to it, um, if we want to use that word, um, the involvement, um, all this does involve personal meaningfulness, personal relevance, my personal process. Uh, gets worked, gets the soil gets tilled there. But we could also just refer to that as uh, the self is sensed with soul. Not just objects in the world, but the self also is sensed with soul. That would be uh, another term that we could use, um, and, and in that way just include the whole uh, of what's happening there in one term, sensed with soul. Um, so that... Uh, with regards to one's own person, one's own existence, one's own self, um, the, the self becomes an object of soul-making. The self becomes an erotic 
other, the elements of, of the self, become erotic beloveds to our own soul. The self and my existence and my journey and my struggles uh, become um, pregnant with meaningfulness, amplified with different meanings and meaningfulness. Um, become, I start to see that the beauty of myself, the beauty of my journey, of my struggles, of my aspirations, of my efforts. I start to see the divinity of myself. That has nothing to do with ego. I've talked about that. I think it was on the Reenchanting the Cosmos retreat. Um, the uh, as we talked about also on that retreat, there's a reenchanting of dukkha, of my suffering, uh, of uh, my travails, my tragedies, my uh, what life has given me to work, to deal with, to face. Uh, the whole sense of self is opened when it's sensed with soul. Um, and all that self-process and uh, soul-fertilizing of the self, soul-making of the sense of self, is is happening in a context um, where the world and others and objects and the things of the world are also re-enchanted. So all that is happening, all that, something akin to individuation and personal healing and personal reduction of dukkha and all that. But the main point is this um, this sensing with soul, sensing existence with soul. Existence and the things, the elements of existence with soul. To me, that's the main point. That's where all this is going. Um, I just want to quote for a little bit from a, um, a philosopher that I've um, b- b- been getting acquainted with in the last, uh, I don't know, really, six months or a year, um, named J. N. Findlay. He's dead now. And uh, it was very uh, unfashionable uh, when he lived. I think he died in the 80s, but uh, so he lived, uh, born in the early 20th century. And um, he would be interested in... Um, certain philosophers and branches of philosophy and directions in philosophy that were really not fashionable um, during the period of his of his life so that he spent a long time kind of really in the provincial outskirts um, sort of banished because people thought he was a bit of a fuddy-duddy, etc. Um, but I, I find a lot of what he says and writes and what he's trying to get at and trying to open up and trying to emphasize the importance of it, I, I find it very beautiful, very touching. And I just want to quote from, there's an essay that's slightly autobiographical, and he says uh, of himself, I myself have always been constitutionally mystical, feeling that certain kinds of rapture, concerned with work, beauty, love, and a few other things, are the only things absolutely worth having. Listen to that. The only things absolutely worth having. I dropped my mysticism for a long period, partly on account of certain disillusioning experiences in my 20s with certain spiritual groups that he was involved with, and partly out of deference to the dry methods and doctrine that prevailed in British philosophy. Uh, Then he says, latterly, however, increasing age, he was only 62 when he wrote this, um, uh, has brought him back to his, uh, his openness to mysticism and his uh, 
seeing of just how important that is, um, and these these aspects of beauty, love, and a few work, beauty, love, and a few other things are the only things absolutely worth ha- having. And he also says, also seeing the completely nugatory accomplishments, that means the completely trivial accomplishments of purely unmystical analysis. So he was a mainstream philosopher in that sort of very dry Anglo-American tradition that prevailed um, for so many years and still is quite popular. And he, you know, he knew all that, he worked with all that, he was uh, respected uh, as a proponent of all that in academic institutions. But then, you know, as he approaches the end of his life, seeing the completely nugatory, trivial accomplishments of purely unmystical philosophical analysis, I have found myself reverting increasingly to my original mysticism. And sometimes, you know, maybe it's certain teachings, or maybe it's certain kinds of philosophy, and you just think, well, so what? So what? Um, so for me, uh, and, and one could even say, even with working with the imagination, it's like it can be, oh, so fascinating, and it's also oh, so, so uh, uh, kind of sexy sounding, or, or whatever. But the main point to me is this sensing existence with soul. Uh, for me, of course, you're free to make whatever is your main point and uh, whatever's most important to you. But for me and my um, intention in, in sort of even starting with these teachings um, was always that. And, and uh, 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 it's the re-enchanting of existence, the opening up of the um, possibilities and the legitimizing of and the uh, making accessible the possibilities of, of genuine, um, vital, and meaningful, and deeply transformative uh, senses of sacredness, in the plural, senses of sacredness. Uh, that, that's my uh, sense of what's most important here. So in all this, uh, there's a... a, a you know, in all this kind of practice, uh, in time, there's a kind of process or journey of opening to um, to make more accessible and more refined this this uh, soul dynamic, soul process of the creation slash discovery or the creation and discovery um, in very individual ways as well as collectively or socially together. And so, uh, um, this. Uh, Creation and discovery of, of senses of sacredness, sensing the world with soul and the possibilities there. Life and death, existence, self, others, objects, world, matter, all the elements of being uh, become image, can become image. And that doesn't mean all the time, 24 hours a day, every day, but the access to that, the refinement with that, the flexibility, the depth and breadth of that um, it gets worked, gets opened over time. Um, and all of that, all the elements of being, matter, self, other, world, life, death, existence, can be um, perceived imaginally in the infinite different ways that that is possible, in the infinitely richly and um, bountiful ways uh, and helpful ways that that's possible. All of that can get sensed with soul. And that, to me, as I said, is, is the, the primary thrust of where this is going, the intention of, of, 
of what uh, what is being opened. Excuse me. Um, now, just a little bit again. I mentioned it already in 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 the first talk at some point, but. Um, um, about vocabulary here. So we've been using this work ima uh, word imaginal, um, and we're still using it, and I don't, I personally don't intend to necessarily give it up. Um, but I am aware, of course, as I said, that um, it can be confusing for some people, or it has been confusing to some people, um, whether they're aware of it or not, or limiting for some people. Um, so I just want to say a bit about these different uh, vocabularies, imaginal and sensing with soul, and really kind of, again, kind of introduce or, um, you know, wave the flag for this uh, this new phrase, sensing with soul, um, alongside the word imaginal as a, as a complement or an alternative. Um, and, and actually say they can be used almost interchangeably, I think. Um, so for some for some people it seems that the word imaginal uh, seems to imply um, uh, a necessary involvement or centering around an intrapsychic visual image. Just the word image in our common usage in in in, in the wider culture seems to imply um, something visual, and seems to for meditators imply something intrapsychic as opposed to like an image in an advert or something. Um, uh, and then we've been through this as well and some people say, well I don't get any of those, I don't get any images. So there's still this idea of intrapsychic visual images. So I thought about it and it occurred to me that maybe the phrase sensing with soul would be um, a helpful complement um, to the word imaginal perhaps for some people. Um, why? Because sensing with soul would imply, or it seems to me to imply, to, that it includes seeing, hearing, um, touching, being touched, and the, the use of the kinesthetic sense, tasting, smelling, thinking, and imagining. Any and all of those, uh, if we say seven senses, if we include, if we count thinking and imagining as the sixth and seventh. Um, <clears throat> And you'll know that uh, classical Buddha Dharma counts the mind, uh, whether it's thinking or imagining or uh, all that, as um, as the sixth sense. But any of those senses, seeing, hearing, touching, being touched by, tasting, smelling, thinking and imagining with soulfulness or in ways that are soul-making. So sensing the soul means... Um, uh, en using any of the senses um, in ways that are... Uh, are soul-making, using them with soulfulness. Now, of course, um, then that just begs the question, what, what do the terms soul, soulfulness, and soul-making uh, mean? And, and that, that needs explaining, um, which I've done elsewhere, and I, but I will go into again. Um, so there's a kind of circularity of definition, but all the most, uh, well... I was going to say all the most important things in life have, have kind of circular definitions, but let's just say this this does. Um, and that's fine, because hopefully you should really get a sense and a taste of what we're talking about here. Um, but this phrase then, sensing with soul, to me would... Um, uh, implies uh, an involvement or inclusion, inclusion of both intrapsychic um, 
phenomena, images, and perceptions of, of this world and material objects and others in this world. In other words, sensing the soul um, do, embraces both the so-called intrapsychic and the extrapsychic. It may be the tendency then with the phrase sensing with soul, um, because of the emphasis on sensing and our usual association of sensing with the five senses and hence the, the link to the extrapsychic and, and the material world, um, it may be that the tendency with the phrase sensing with soul um, then kind of drifts the other way uh, for some people, away from the intrapsychic. Um, but you know, no phrase or term is going to be perfect and is going to totally eliminate all incompleteness of understanding or, uh, you know, um, misemphasis or of, um, or unfair emphasis of direction and all that. So I want to introduce it as a kind of um, complement, or for some it will be an alternative to the word imaginal. Um, as I said, embracing both the intrapsychic and the extrapsychic. But also the phrase sensing the soul um, hopefully makes it clear that images are not necessarily visual. Um, so, you know, we, could give, we have and we could give so many examples here, but um, I think it was in the talk Image Mythos Dharma, in the first part of that talk. Um, I don't know, some of you may be uh, like really dedicated musicians and um, and really in, in into that art of, of music and um, and that whole life of that. Um, and in the way that a musician who is really into it and, and in the moments when they're they are playing with soul, uh, their instrument, um, the way they touch the instrument, the way uh, uh, they they move their fingers or their lips, um, the, the the contact, the the the, the manner and, and the um, uh, all the all the extreme subtleties that you would be really hard pressed to even analyze into their components or sum up, but that way of touching and playing an instrument is part, of course, of their technique. It's part of how they, you know, are accomplished in the way that they do and get the instrument to make the sound that that, that they want it to say to make. But it's also imbued with soul. When uh, so again, if you're a musician, you'll recognize this um, that when when you when when you're playing with soul, then the way you're touching the instrument, the movement and the the um, the contact and the kinds of contact with the instrument, the actual physical impact is being perceived. Uh, perceived with soul, perceived soul, soulfully, sensed with soul, and also felt, uh, sorry, sensed with soul, and also made, moved by soul. Um, so the whole thing, all, all that touch and contact is imbued with soul, and um, and actually it involves a perception of the, the self, um, some kind of other, which may be the instrument, and the music and the sound, uh, and maybe other musicians in the present moment that one might be playing with, and also other musicians in history that are alive as images 
um, somehow imbuing your uh, music making creative process in the moment and also the world and the audience and the, the sense uh, or the imaginal perception of the audience's um, participation and listening and involvement and enjoyment and openness and appreciation to the mu- of the music. So that there's nothing um, necessarily visual there. It, the, the imaginal element of the sensing the soul is really happening in in the touch and in the listening and in uh, it, it's happening. And if, if we're talking about the the way of touching the instrument, it's very very subtle. And the way it's woven into touch there is very, very subtle. Maybe more accessible um, uh, for a lot of people, example, would would have just been the the way lovers touch when they're in love. Uh, Of course, it's sensually pleasant. Uh, Of course, there is goodwill communicated. But there's another element there of the erotic imaginal in 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 and through the touch. Even if one has one eyes closed and uh, you understand, so sensing with soul um, or sensing and acting with soul involves um, all kinds of um, perceptions of self, other, object, um, could be in any of the senses and world. All, all seven senses. Actually, on that musician um, example, um, some of you know B.B. King, the the uh, blues singer who died not too long ago, a uh, great blues blues singer and guitarist. And he, um, you may know this if you know if you know him, um, he uh, called. He, his guitar and Lucille. So his guitar was um, for for him f- a feminine person that he had a real intimate relationship with. Um, so there's an imaginal relationship there, um, and maybe a sensing with soul. Um, but that's relatively gross. If you just say, "Oh, it's a his." Uh, guitar becomes a person. That's a relatively, just that much, is a relatively gross sort of uh, sensing the soul, a relatively gross um, imaginal perception when someone might not personify their instrument that way, for example. And the whole sensing the soul is happening, as I said, through the touch or through um, the sense of the audience or through the sound or through the kind of historical connection that's happening so subtly with um, previous musicians who, who are who are images for us. Um, but it, it, the, ma- the main point here was that it, it can it doesn't have to be visual. So it can be extremely subtle and can happen um, through uh, any and all of the senses. And again, notice that in when I made a kind of a seven senses there, that thinking is included in sensing the soul. So again, um, in the thinking, in in the conceiving mind, uh, there can be um, a soul-making fantasy uh, of thinking, of my thinking, of the thinking happening itself. It becomes uh, imaginal. The thinking itself, our our sense of our own thinking 
becomes imaginal. We perceive it imaginally. We sense our own thinking with soul. Then, then the thinking itself becomes an image, becomes uh, an, an erotic. Our thinking, the thought, the thinker, ourselves as thinker. And also, a uh, distinction we've already made, there can be a soulful conceptualizing. Um, or a, a soul-making uh, with respect or in relationship to one's conceiving. So all of the senses uh, can be um, arena spheres, to borrow the Buddha's word, ayatana, um, for soul-making. Soul-making can happen through and with and in all all the senses. So in some respects it's it's useful to make a distinction between um, intrapsychic images and uh, kind of extrapsychic sensing with soul, intrapsychic sensing with soul, extrapsychic um, sensing with soul, or the imaginal perception of this material world. But um, but uh, let's say sensing the soul includes intrapsychic, um, the intrapsychic imaginal, and let's say that we can just about use the words interchangeably: imaginal and sensing the soul. If we uh, explore a little bit um, just the nature of sensing and the phenomenology of sensing and uh, and this notion of sensing the soul, um, I'll just highlight a few things. <clears throat> so one could say that one, one, there's a um, you know good good uh, justifiable reasons for for saying from from a certain point of view or a certain way of thinking about things, analyzing things, you could say that any and all perception, uh, which means any and all experience or any and all appearances, I use those words, perception, experience and appearance pretty much interchangeably, any and all perception, experience, appearance is um, fabricated in a way that involves or mixes or um, relies on the cooperation of or is infused by four um, dimensions of our being or, or aspects or elements or uh, factors. Um, one is conception, and I've emphasised this before, um, and that, that includes everything from you know the most gross conception to really, really subtle conceptions and assumptions about what is real and what knowledge is and... Um, any kind of delineation of perception involves a delineation of conception. Whether we're conscious of what's going on conceptually or not, and for the most part we're not, in fact. Um, so conception. Secondly, um, intentionality or desire um, is also a factor involved in, mixed in with, um, uh, cooperating in and infusing um, our um, a- any fabrication of any perception, any perception at all. Um, so that means what is actually the intention in perceiving? 
Um, what is the desire? What kind of desire is it? Is it uh, clinging? And there needs to be some kind of clinging, uh, if you know the way I would explain the phenomenology of perception and, and the whole ways of looking and fabricating. Some kind of clinging. Is it craving, though, or is it eros? Um, some kind also of aspiration, which might be very developed. <coughs> the aspiration to see along some kind of uh, dharmic lines to see impermanence, or the aspiration for liberation, or the aspiration to um, sense with soul. Um, It might be quite a developed and conscious aspiration, a sophisticated aspiration, or it may be very, very subtle. It may be conscious, it may not be conscious. But some kind of intentionality or desire or aspiration is involved um, as a second factor, if you like. Um, The third, uh, we could say, is just sense data. Um, or rather these these factors, these four factors, the fourth being the imaginal faculty, as I said, they're they're all involved and mixed together, or they cooperate, or they infuse each other. We could say they're in dialogue with each other. Sense data, the imaginative faculty, conception, and desire, intentionality, aspiration, are in dialogue with each other to inform, uh, shape, um, influence uh, our perceptions of anything, of uh, in life, things, and existence in any moment. You understand? Um, the dialogue, though, is not really a good word because it implies a kind of separability. This is in dialogue with that. Um, the imaginative faculty is in dialogue with the sense data, as if the sense data were something raw and pristine and we could arrive at it and separate it on its own. We can't. That's not possible, despite the, the uh, sort of um, teachings of bare attention that, that uh, used to be quite common in the Dharma world, at least. Um, uh, these four factors are inseparable. They, they, they are mixed together in a way we're kind of artificially separating something just as, as a conceptual structure right now that's not actually separable. So sense data is always mixed with conception, it's always uh, mixed with intentionality and some degree of imaginal faculty. So each of these four, conception, intentionality or desire, um, what we might call sense data in inverted commas, and the imaginal faculty, um, they are all involved um, to some degree or other. In other words, you can have a really... uh, rich involvement of the imaginal faculty and it can be shaped this way or that way like towards more papancha or towards more soul making or colored this way or that way and as I said there can be a really sophisticated conscious involvement of the conceptuality or just a very unconscious and not very sophisticated um, involvement of conceptuality so they all they all can kind of be more or less um, each individually and relative to each other but they're and they're inseparable and they're kind of um, uh, there's a confluence or or they're all influenced they're all mixed together so we can say that with some justification as a sort of way of conceiving what's happening with any and all perception, uh, any and all experience, or any and all uh, sense of an appearance. When we talk about sensing with soul, um, one way of understanding what we really mean is that those four factors 
um, are working in a way that brings soul making, that open soul making. Excuse me. So the, the, the conception operating, the, the kind of desire or intention or aspiration operating, and the imaginal faculty, imaginative faculty, um, are, are operating in a way that supports and opens and nourishes soul making um, in the moment so that the imaginative faculty is not papancha, uh, towards papancha, um, nor is it so... Um, uh, minim- uh, nor is it so reified, uh, that would be a, a good distinction to make, um, but, but it's more imaginal with all those elements. So sensing the soul is just those four fac- factors mixing and cooperating and um, being in certain... Uh, state each of them and the way they mix that soul making is is the result that's another way of thinking about what's going on when um there is that extra psychic sensing with soul in other words material objects or persons um who are present to us uh, in material actuality are are, are uh, perceived imaginally and um, when there's this extra psychic sensing the soul, there's a kind of um, uh, obviously direct um, meeting or mixing or infusing or Im- involvement of the imaginal faculty. Yes, when I am um, uh, seeing my beloved um, and perceiving her, him, them, imaginally, um, when I'm sensing them with soul, or sensing this tree, or this mountain, or um, whatever it is, sensing it with soul, perceiving it imaginally, the, um, the involvement of the ima- imaginative faculty, actually, the imaginal faculty, is very obvious and direct. Um, in that imaginal perception of, of things, of, of life, of, of matter, of, of world, of objects. When uh, the sensing the soul is more intrapsychic, intrapsychic, imaginal, um, then the involvement um, of the imaginative faculty with um, with life and events and material objects is it, it it's there, but it seems less direct. And we talked about this kind of in this mirroring and echoing. Sometimes it's not so obvious, and um, but in both cases, um, intrapsychic sensing with soul and extrapsychic sensing with soul, um, the uh, I- imaginal faculty is involved in, in both the ways that it meets the world. But the intrapsychic one, the meeting of the imaginary faculty of the world, is sometimes not so directly obvious. But whether we talk about intrapsychic sensing the soul or extrapsychic sensing the soul, so-called, you can tell I don't really even like those terms, but um, intrapsychic, extrapsychic, but um, all sensing the soul implies that reverence is there. All sensing the soul involves reverence, involves humility, involves love, involves the perception and the being touched by Beauty, a beauty is the opening up of the perception of beauty um, in ways that are uh, 
deeply meaningful, involves the sense of duty or duties, involves a sense of unfathomability, something that is beyond my perception and my conception, something that the Eros, the pothos in the Eros wants to uh, reach out into, connect with, know, become intimate with, open to. Um, uh, all sensing the soul includes uh, dimensionality, sense of dimensionality and eventually a sense of divinity, um, soft, elastic edges, uh, involves um, s- some attenuation of grasping and some eros as well, um, will preserve and even cr- you know, the tunus that we talked about, even if at the same time we're aware of an, uh, you could say, an underlying oneness, all sensing the soul eventually will, um, if we stay with it, will uh, reveal a sense of participation and a conception, even if it's vague, of participation, etc. Basically, all the list that we went through before, all those elements, 23, and there's probably more that we didn't include, um, all of that um, will be present um, when they're sensing the soul. All of those elements, all of those aspects are important elements and aspects of sensing the soul. <clears throat> if we put this in also in, in, a, in a slightly different context and think about um, think about sense contact um, to borrow a phrase of the Buddha's or sense experience um, and we think about what are the possible if you like skillful modes of sense contact what are the possible skillful modes of sense contact and um, just to uh, outline a few, um, actually before we do, to point out that that word skillful, kusala, is a, is a word the Buddha used. Um, but the words give say, what's a skillful mode of sense contact? Well, a couple of things. One is that um, what is skillful is uh, uh, contextually determined by at least two things. One is the tradition. So that the, the tradition we're in uh, determines or kind of decides for us or holds up some kind of sense contact as skillful. Um, it determines what skillful means. If um, opening to seeing Christ in everyone and everything is uh, the um, goal of, of the path or a part of uh, an element, uh, uh, you know, something one wants to open to on the path, then that's going to determine, obviously, what skillful means. If one uh, interprets Theravada Buddhism along certain lines, then skillful has um, quite a different meaning. Um, so, uh, and then within Buddha Dharma, you can also see how that word um, means really quite different things to different interp- just different interpretations of the Pali Canon, for instance. What does it mean, skillful sense contact? Um, so, 
to be aware, as always, that all this is contextualized by tradition. We are informed, persuaded by, sometimes indoctrinated by the tradition that we're in. So whenever we use skillful, it's relative to a certain tradition or according to a certain tradition. And actually related to that point, the word skillful or the label skillful for any kind of sense contact or thought or conception or whatever it is, um, is also contextualized um, uh, or contextually determined by what one's long-term and short-term aims are. Yeah. So, um, for instance, um, my long-term aim might be to really... Um, you know, explore all this imaginal stuff and open up the eros, and um, but it might be that right now that's not the right thing to do, and I need to move into another mode. And so, right now, the skillful sense contact is 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 um, is, is not to open up more eros. Is is the fire is already raging, and and actually it's raging in a way that's uh, not that helpful, and I need to relate to sense contact in a different way. Um, if the long-term goal is knowing the unfabricated and eventually not being reborn, again, that really um, uh, uh, that that forms a long-term aim, and that that dis- that informs what skill what skillful means. Um, but the short-term aim might be, um, uh, you know, to go to this. To, to, to make it to the teacher's talk on time. Um, and so I can't be unfabricating too much um, because I won't be able to get there. I won't be able to find the place. I won't be able to function in the world if I'm all the time unfabricating like that. Um, we can make lots of delineations like that. But just the point is, the, you know, when we say skillful modes of sense, sense contact, really to understand that that's a contextualized word dependent on different factors. But we could, just for now, actually delineate four um, possible, in quotes, skillful modes of sense contact, of sense sensing. One is just the normal, um, normal way we engage sense contact when we're moving through the busyness of life, the busyness of our life, um, encountering objects and stuff that we need to get done. Um, and so there's a kind of um uh perfunctory if you like um uh mode of sense contact and of course this is okay at times you know we need stuff like that happens we just get through the world it's like get in the car drive it get on the bike you know ride it whatever to this place sense contact is delineated um and we're just trying to accomplish something um for some other end that's hopefully a good end. Um, this is, of course, fine, but then we're in a certain mode of sense contact then. Um, and it's fine, you know, according to Buddha Dharma, if there's a certain level of mindfulness, just a basic level of mindfulness, a basic level of what the Buddha calls sampajana, uh, just kind of clear, translates usually as clear comprehension. I know where I am and what I'm doing and kind of how my body is and where I'm going and what my intention is. Um, a basic certain level of mindfulness and 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 what we could call a normal uh, mode of sense contact in in a busy life moving through the world getting things done fine and completely appropriate at times a second 
possible, quote, skillful mode of sense contact would be what we might say a slightly more intense mindfulness, um, and specifically a slightly more, um, let's say, narrowly focused mindfulness, and a mindfulness that's focused through um, some or other lens of a Dharma concept. So, for example, um, uh, a sense contact looking through the lens of, I don't know, the second foundation of mindfulness. Or, or the first foundation, or whatever it is, um, or some aspects of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, when the Buddha uh, delineates certain lists, for example, um, sense contact looked at through the, the Dharma lens of the um, six sense spheres um, <coughs> or fields, uh, or the 18 sense con- constituents, and that sort of way of um, organizing one's experience or a way of looking basically at experience and um, with this kind of more intense and more narrowly focused mindfulness in other words focused narrowly according to this dharma lens there's a second way and and that has the effect the skill in that is that it um simplifies things but through a certain reductionism so by virtue of this kind of lens or sometimes kind of grid that we're looking at things at, three kinds of Vedana, um, three kinds of reaction to three kinds of Vedana, etc., etc., um, <clears throat> then uh, uh, that's simplifying through, redu- through reductionism, through a certain kind of certain kind of helpful reductionism. So even the idea of bare attention as a sort of Dharma concept becomes a Dharma lens. Um, it's simplifying and it's helpful or the four elements, earth, air, fire, water, or just the idea of contact, you know, um, uh, or the 12 links of dependent origination or whatever. So this is extremely valuable at times, and you know that if you've practiced this way, at times. And with that, because of the simplifying um, and uh, and other factors, there's, there's a relative degree of lessening of clinging and craving at that point. So there's a relative degree of less fabricating. Um, things simplify and they they are fabricated less to a certain degree. And at times, um, that's an extremely, or that set of um, modes of sense contact, or ways of looking, extremely valuable. You know, really, really helpful. Really good things to know and have, have developed the, the skills of a third kind of uh, possible, possibly skillful mode of sense contact is <clears throat> is one that, um, in the sense contact, uh, senses or sees, if you like, or knows oneness, and and we've gone through this different kinds of oneness and love or awareness or this or that or peace or the, even the emptiness of phenomena, um, and so that the sensing then is not so much. Uh, it's a different kind of reductionism. It's not so um, atomistic, um, but uh, in a way, when that's really deep, there's 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 almost a mode of sense contact which, um, if you like, doesn't buy into the whole idea of contact. It's not so much this touching that, this sense sphere touching uh, that. There is a sense of um, all is one uh, essence. So it's not this uh, this sense base touches that sense object. Um, there is uh, more a sense of both 
so-called sense base and so-called sense object are really just um, waves, uh, foam in the same sea, in the same ocean. Not so much this touching that. And that too is extremely valuable at times, extremely beautiful. Um, And also with that there is probably an even greater degree of lessening of clinging and craving and fabrication at that moment. Um, and actually, as, as we said before, one can go, uh, w- w- one can unfabricate so much that even the um, even the perception of sense contact fades, so that one doesn't actually have bodily sensations and sometimes even the, the vision, etc., or the hearing. And um, there's actually a fading that the um, so in in this third mode in what we could call the the direction of unfabricating or the seeing of different kinds of oneness, um, the whole kind of um, structure of sense contact begins to uh, melt um, into oneness and actually into a kind of fading and disappearing. And then we could say there's a fourth um, uh, possibly skillful mode of sense contact, which is what we're calling sensing the soul. Imaginal sense contact, imaginal sensing. We're calling it sensing the soul. And in that mode, um, this my personhood and the personhood and particularity of what is sensed is preserved. So there is not a kind of reduction to just seeing some kind of process with different constituents, as in the second mode. Um, nor a kind of atom, atomization, nor is there a dissolution into some kind of true nature of, um, of of love or true nature of being or awareness or some other kind of oneness. Um, pr- pr- preservation of um, my and the objects, um, personhoods, um, souls, really. And uh, also liberated and made present different kind of senses of beauty, which, which you know, again, I've talked about this before, beauty means much more than just um, pleasant vedna or pleasant sensations arranged. Um, liberates and, and, and brings to present a sense of meaningfulness, um, much more so than the kind of uh, getting things done of the first uh, of the first uh, skillful motor sense contact um, liberates a sense of mystery, unfathomability, holiness, value, all these elements that we're talking about, that elements of soul making. And this fourth, this sensing with soul, um, this sensing in a way that is soul making and the filling out of that dimensionality, the, the amplification, the expanding of all that's involved there, um, this too decreases craving and increases equanimity. So we talk a lot about eros and fire and um, and all this, but don't overlook the fact that um, this sensing with soul generally also brings equanimity in a different way, but at a very deep level, um, and and is is also involves a. A reduction in, in the moment where sensing soul involves a reduction of craving. And I would also say more long term. When we sense food with soul, um, uh, and, and that becomes more a common and commonly ex- and frequently accessible perception of our food 
for example, then the whole kind of craving for I need to eat X or Y or this tasty food or it has to be like this or it has to, you know, whatever, it's... Um, it gets attenuated. It dies down. We 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 have we are fed by something much more important than pleasant vedna, much more nourishing than pleasant vedna. The body is nourished by the food, and the soul is nourished by the soul-making perception of the food by sensing with soul. And as I said, this kind of sensing with soul and sensing one's existence with soul, and the elements a bit brings a. a, a I, I feel a really profound and widespread equanimity. And I'll talk about this in the next talk, some of how this happens. Perceiving, imagining, sensing the soul. So, you know, just one very, if I speak personally, very, very immediately accessible and personal example is just in relation to my cancer and the, the possibility and, and, and being given such a dire prognosis, the possibility of um, dying very soon. Uh, when I uh, am, uh, when I sense my uh, existence and myself and my illness and my life and my death with soul, and 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 inca- you know, uh, confronting, including embracing with soul the very real possibility of of. Uh, of, of, of a death soon, and all the disability and the um, impediment and the um, restriction and the um, unpleasantness and the difficulty and the incapacity that um, being ill long term involves. Um, when I uh, sense that with soul in, in all the kind of different possible ways, there's, there's I, I honestly say, and I'll share about this, how. What a deep equanimity comes. It comes in a very different way than just seeing it's empty. Oh yeah, it's impermanent. Life is impermanent. Health is impermanent. Very different way than just applying mindfulness to unpleasant sensations. Different way than oneness. There's a there's a whole different um, realm of possibilities um, for the. Uh, letting go of craving and for the um, deepening and strengthening and widening of um, of equanimity in one's life in relation to the most difficult elements uh, that can be uh, faced or experienced. Well, I'll maybe maybe say some more about that. But just the point right now is this fourth. Um, possibly skillful mode of sense contact we can move in and out of. So we can move between, and we do, you know, a developed practice, a mature practitioner will move between these um, skillful modes of sense contact. But this fourth one, the sensing with soul, um, different than the others, and um, it too um, involves, to some degree, less fabrication, but still preserves fabrication. It involves less cringing. Craving, but more eros, um, and and it brings equanimity, as should the second and the third. Um, <clears throat> actually, a little bit a second point, perhaps. Um, in if, again, if we're kind of contextualizing um, this this idea of sensing the soul is to point out that um, 
sensing with soul, sensing with soulfulness, sensing with soul, um, it must include at least implicitly um, sensing with mindfulness. Um, now, people use the word mindfulness in quite broad ways and, and emphasize uh, different aspects of it uh, or tend to different kind of schools and ways that it's taught. Um, but sensing with soul uh, must include at least implicitly sensing with mindfulness, um, which includes then to me the qualities of presence, wakefulness, careful attention. Right? These are central to what we mean by mindfulness. Um, of course. And there's no sensing with soul without presence, wakefulness, and careful attention. They also just, um, uh, sensing with soul uh, includes, because it is also includes sensing with mindfulness, includes similarly the qualities of sensitivity and responsiveness. Sensitivity and responsiveness. So sensitivity um, and also the, the the, the capacity to, to modulate our uh, kind of mindfulness or where we direct the attention or how we resp- how we basically respond that's part of mindfulness at least in the way some people would teach it it's not just a, a blanket um, one gear sort of um, passive mode um, of attention mindfulness mindfulness also includes um, appropriate attention um, that's a translation of the Pali Yoniso Manasikara, Yoniso Manasikara, um, which is a funny phrase uh, that sometimes people emphasize and sometimes people don't at all, but it's linked with mindfulness, and the Buddha placed a lot of emphasis on it. It was a very important concept for him. And um, I would translate it as something like um, minding or knowing or um, or even thinking um, uh, um, by way of the matrix, or by way of the womb, yoni, womb, matrix, something like that, um, which implies that that involved in the whole way we're paying mindfulness, and involved in the intention of mindfulness, is an interest in exploring and investigating and an attention to the dependent origination of what arises and what passes. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, when it says... Um, attending to the arising factors, attending to the dissolution factors. Some people just translate that, mean noticing arising and passing, in other words, noticing impermanence. But the Pali word that goes with it is samudaya, which really means, um, which is the same word for, uh, used in the arising of suffering and the arising and dependent arising. Um, so in its broader sense, I would tend to emphasize that that's that's what appropriate attention means or includes is this kind of awareness of the dependent origination of what is arising and what is passing. And similarly, when we're sensing the soul, we're attuning to, interested in the dependent origination of what is happening. It's not, as I said, as I pointed out, sensing the soul is not just a kind of um, passive um, receiving uh, in... in um, in a kind of fixed mode, it's uh, agile, responsive, flexible, and um, aware of and interested in the dependent arising. Like, if I trust a bit more, then the image uh, opens up more. If I 
um, dwell with my sense of humility or whatever it is, then the thing becomes more imaginal. As it becomes more imaginal, I see that the self becomes image. All this is de- the dependent arising of the imaginal perception, the dependent arising of what is sensed with soul. And so for some people that's... Uh, that is an important part, that appropriate attention, as it's sometimes translated, Yoni Sikara, is an important part of um, of what mindfulness means, and uh, and, and likewise an important part of, of uh, what sensing the soul involves. Um, the third uh, of the qualities of mindfulness that we can just, just highlight right now, um, of sensing with mindfulness, um, that is also Im- implicit in sensing the soulfulness um, is reverence, which we've we, which we've touched on before. But reverence, uh, and again, to point out, mindfulness is nowadays taught in different um, settings, with different intentions, with different slants, with different um, contexts of um, cosmology and all, all kinds of business, and um, but. Many people in teaching mindfulness actually um, very beautifully em- emphasize that mindfulness involves a kind of reverence. Um, it's included either explicitly, maybe not that word exactly, or just implied as an aspect of mindfulness in many contemporary mindfulness teachings. Reverence for what, though? Uh, so sometimes it might be, again, it might be implicit or explicit. Reverence for this moment. Um, sometimes that's the kind of what's communicated. Reverence for life, with a big L. Uh, reverence for what is. So these are all kind of, um, again, either explicit or implicit communications that go along with the way that different ways mindfulness is presented. Still, that's different. Those kind of reverences, or objects of reverence, if you like, are still different than a reverence for soul. Um with uh, all the open-ended creation and discovery that um, is implied and involved in the word soul. Um, And uh, a reverence implicitly then, in in the reverence of soul, implicitly the possibility for the possibility that this experience, um, this experience of the self, me, um, this object experience, e.g., this matter, um, that is also soul. So when there's a reverence for soul, there's there's a um, an implicit possibility that all that too can be um, included as soul. It is soul, or can be um, ensouled, if you like, it can come to be sensed as soul. So that when the reverence in in the sensing for soul, sensing with soul, the reverence is really for soul, um, which may be quite a different, uh, it, that may not be um, uh, in the circumscription in uh, of certain mindfulness teachings, where it may be more the reverences, sometimes for nature, or um, this moment, or life, or what is, or what, you know, what, whatever it is. Reverence for soul that's included um, in sensing with soul is broader, more, more far-reaching, more multi-dimensional, as we've explained. But anyway, reverence as an aspect of mindfulness um, and 
because sensing the soul um, includes, at least implicitly, sensing with mindfulness. Reverence is there. There are, there are overlaps. And mindfulness, actually, again, depending on how it's taught, etc., but basically, um, mindfulness um, includes, implicitly at least, and usually explicitly, um, discernment regarding what leads to suffering and what leads to a decrease in suffering. Um, because mindfulness, the teaching of mindfulness, is actually embedded in Buddha Dharma and the, four, and the centrality of the Four Noble Truths, which concern themselves um, absolutely fundamentally with this: um, what leads to suffering, what leads to locking suffering into place, what leads to increasing suffering, and what leads to freeing from suffering, decreasing suffering. Um, so. Sensing the soul also involves a discernment along these lines. It involves um, discernment generally, as we talk all kinds of discernments, but um, but also discernment between um, eros and craving. Uh, and here again, it's like the kinds of movements of desire that not just lead to suffering or less suffering, more suffering or less suffering, or um, but also soul-making or not soul-making. Uh, and betwi- b- uh, discerning between imaginal perceptions that are more uh, going in the direction of papancha and ones that are more along the spectrum towards the imaginal. And discerning between um, concepts and, and, and logoi that um, nourish and open and support soul-making and those that um, uh, I- imprison um, soul-making uh, and also imprison the being, um, and those that don't. So discernment is actually a factor of mindfulness, and likewise, um, it's it's present in sensing with soul. I would say that the range of discernment is is broader um, in the sensing with soul as well. And last, just to point out, I'll just repeat, I've already said it, but um, uh, sensing with soul uh, involves play. Play is is an element in the sense of the, the permission and the capacity for flexibility, fluidity, experimenting, trying things out, um, uh, curious uh, uh, responsiveness and experimentation. And so play, as I would understand it, is um, needs to be uh, part of the image and the idea, the logos, of practice, of my path, and of my goal. That actually liberation, awakening, enlightenment, actually... Uh, one of the things that means is a liberation, a freeing up of the flexibility of ways of looking, ways of relating, ways of being. That's what's liberated. That's what's opened. One of the most significant um, features for me of what liberation might mean, awakening might mean. So the image of playfulness and the idea, the notion, the logos of playfulness need to be um, 
part of the image and idea of what I have of of um, of practice, of path, of goal. Sensing the soul needs that too, as I've pointed out before. All right, let's stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.